Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon and this is episode 15, Fragmentation and Decline. Thanks for listening in. Last week we went slightly off piste and took a look at the Byzantine Emperor's personal bodyguard, the Varangian Guard, which from its formation in the late 900s until the Fourth Crusade in the early 1200s was mainly made up of Varangians or Rus and the Anglo-Saxons. This week we're back with the main story and looking at the fragmentation of the Kievan Rus and the effective demise of Kiev. But before we start, there's just a couple of things that I want to mention. And first of all, I've got a correction to make. At the beginning of some of the episodes, I like to start the main narrative off with a rousing paidiom, which means let's go in Russian, or at least I thought it did. And well, it sort of half does. Well, how did I find this out? Well, it's all down to Victor from St. Petersburg, who pointed out to me that Paidion would normally be used in instances where you were actually physically going somewhere, like the theatre or a restaurant, for example. The correct term for the more general let's go is a word that's spelt, well, in Roman script anyway, P-O-E-K-H-A-L-I. So it sounds like Pokhali, but from what I can make out, it's pronounced Pokhaya. So thanks, Victor. That's very much appreciated. Secondly, big thanks go out to Gom JSK, Were Doomed, and Alex Avdakov for following the podcast. Uh, Alec uh, is a podcaster himself. He's currently doing a podcast on the life and times of Frederick the Great, somebody I know very little about. So I've uh, joined up, followed, and I'm listening to it. And it's a great little podcast. Thanks to all of them for following my podcast. And then thirdly, I've got a bit of a moan, or what a moan stroke confession. 
Because there's certain periods of history that no matter how much I read or study, I just can't get my head around. And even if I think I do understand things, a couple of weeks or some, sometimes days later, I inevitably find out that very little of what I've read has stuck. And classic examples of this for me are the Spanish Civil War, the whole Cromwell and the English Republic thing, the Thirty Years' War, which is a nightmare, and the Irish struggle for independence. And I'm not altogether sure what the main reasons for this ineptitude on my part are, although I guess most of it could be down to lots of unfamiliar names, a complex series of events, and maybe contradictory sources. Well, there's now another one to add to my list, because when I was preparing my notes for this episode, I had that sinking feeling, and sure enough, when I went back to what I had written, it was all a bit of a muddle and lacked a degree of clarity. Which is strange, because up until now, I found it relatively straightforward to come up with a way of weaving together and simplifying the main themes of each of the historical periods that I'm covering. But mid to late 12th century Kievan Rus has, to be honest, proved to be a struggle. So, what I've decided to do is strip back on the plethora of people that are involved and try to keep everything as simple as possible. And I'm going to break this episode, which covers the period between 1132 and 1170, into four main components. So, number one, we'll look at the sub princedoms. Number two, the people in charge of Kiev, three, the fragmentation of the Rus state and the end of Kievan control, and finally, a quick look at one of the sub-princedoms. And then I'll wrap everything up at the end. But enough, Damon. You lot haven't taken the time to listen to this episode to hear me banging on about how difficult it was to put everything together. And so, without further ado, Pokhaya! So first of all, let's do some scene setting and look at the way that the Rus lands were divided up into the various provinces or sub-princedoms. Now I've mentioned some of these before, like Chernigov, Novgorod and Pereslav, but there are others I haven't told you about, so let's go through them all. And actually, if you want help visualising where they are, uh, a couple of weeks ago I posted a map up on the website, which is historyofrussia.podbean.com. Com. Okay, so broadly going from south to north, we have the princedoms of Halich, or sometimes it's spelt Gallic with a G, and Volin, which are both to the west of Kiev. Then you've got Kiev itself, and then Chernigov and Pereslav to the east of Kiev. Then going up a bit, in the middle of the Ruslands, above Kiev, we find Polotsk and Smolensk. And then further to the north of those, we have Novgorod and Rostov-Suzdal, the latter being later referred to as Vladimir-Suzdal, or sometimes Vladimir-Rostov-Suzdal. And then finally, out to the east of Chernigov, so in the far east of the Ruslands, we find the princedom of Murom-Ryazan, or sometimes it's just called Ryazan. So that makes nine in total, five in the south, two in the middle, two in the north, and one stuck out to the east. However, 
Just to confuse matters, some sources state that there are 12, but that's because they count Muron Ryazan and Vladimir Rostov Suzdal as separate entities. Okay, so why have I basically just run through a list of places? Well, for reasons that I've been hinting at for the past couple of episodes and the title of this one, Kiev is going to become less important, while some of the other princedoms are going to become more important, and in particular, Novgorod and Vladimir Rostov Suzdal. Actually, I'm, I'm just going to call it Vladimir, I think, from now on. But don't worry about Kiev. It's still going to be there. Well, it, it's there today. And it will still be of historical, religious and cultural importance to the Rus and the Russians, Belarusians and Ukrainians who we've yet to meet. It just won't be as key or central as it once was. A bit like London. OK, so that's the geography sorted. Now let's take a look at some of the key people who are around in the time period we're covering. So remember, we've just been through the reigns of Vladimir Monomakh and his son Mustislav I. Now between the death of Mustislav I in 1132 and the death of his grandson Mustislav II in 1170, there were 20 changes of either Grand Prince or Regime. And I mentioned Grand Prince or Regime because some of the rulers, well in fact nearly all of them, had multiple goes at being in charge. I'll run through them quickly and they fit into three broad groupings. So to begin with, we've got Vladimir Monomarch's other sons who are all brothers of Mstislav I or the Great. So we have Yaropolk II, Vyacheslav, and Yuri Dolgoruki, who we met a couple of weeks ago. Now, both Vyacheslav and Yuri were in charge three times each. And some sources point out that at the end of Yuri's third time in charge, in 1157, that Kiev was effectively finished as the foremost power in the Rus lands. But we'll cover all of that in a few minutes. Then we have the descendants of Mustislav I. So his sons Isaislav II, who again was in charge three times. Same for Rostislav. And then finally his grandson Mustislav II. And then finally there were the grandsons of Sviatopolk II, who remember was a junior member of the triumvirate that we spoke about, well, I think it was three weeks ago now. And that's Vesevolod II, Igor II, and Isaislav III. And, and Isaislav III had three goes as well. And then we've got one other important player to mention, and that's a character called Andrei Bogolyubsky, who was Yuri Dolgoruki's son. So I don't expect you to remember all of those, and that's why I haven't gone through each one of the, I don't know, 10 or 12 of them who were in charge 20 times in great detail. So that's the places and names out the way. So let's now take a look at what actually happened in some of these places to the key people I've just mentioned. So the chronicles state that the last ruler to maintain a united Rus state centred in Kiev, and that's the important bit, was Mstislav the Great, or the Busy, as I referred to him a couple of episodes ago. And after his death in 1132, Kievan Rus fell into recession and a rapid decline. And Mstislav's successor, his brother, Yaropolk II, 
instead of focusing on the external threat of the Cumans, yeah, they're still around, but as far as I can see, are they that much of an external threat? Well, let's see. Yarapolk got himself involved in a conflict with the growing power of the moment, his brother Yuri Dolgoruki, or if you remember, Yuri the Far-Reaching. Well, Yarapolk got himself involved in a conflict? That's a little unfair, as we'll soon see. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. First, though, a bit of background on Yuri. I've mentioned him, well, in this episode and a couple of weeks ago. In 1108, Vladimir Monomark sent his young son nominally to govern the Rostov Principality. In 1121, Yuri quarrelled with the boyars of Rostov and moved, to the capital of his, moved the capital of his lands from that city to Suzdal, hence Rostov-Suzdal. And as the area was sparsely, sparsely populated, Yuri established many towns and fortresses, and as I've already mentioned previously, one of the towns was called Moscow, allegedly. Well, not that it wasn't called Moscow, it's just we're not certain that Yuri founded it. And you'll have noticed the mention of the word boyar or boyar there for the first time in the podcast. And it's simply a Russian generic term for nobles or the aristocracy. Okay. But for Yuri, life in Suzdal was all a bit of a sideshow, and he wanted to be wielding power in the centre of things. And to do that, he needed to be in Kiev. So the sources tell us that as soon as big brother Mustislav died, he declared war on his other brother Yaropolk II. See, I told you it wasn't Yaropolk's fault. And if that wasn't enough, he also decided to declare, to declare war on the princedom of Chernigov for good measure. And it's for this meddling in southern Rus affairs that he gets his nickname Dolgoruki. And just while we're on the subject, the Dolgoruki were a famous family in the time of the Tsars, rising to prominence in the 17th century. And whilst I haven't been able to find 100% that, you know, Yuri is the ancestor, it is possible that he was the founder of the house. And he's not just involved in fighting in Kiev and Chernigov. He's also got his long arms wrapped around his father's lands in Pereslav, and up in the north, he enthroned one of his sons as the Prince of Novgorod. And then in 1140, Dolgoruki went for the big one, captured Kiev, and installed himself as the Grand Prince. But as previously intimated, not everything went to plan, and on two occasions he totally lost his grip and was driven out of Kiev. 
But he's nothing but other than a determined character. And he returned in 1155 for one last go. Unfortunately, though, this only lasted for two years. In 1157, he died, probably from poison. And it's at this point that everything imploded into full-on civil war between the different Rus' princedoms. And whilst nominally there was still a Grand Prince in Kiev for the next 12 years, or several Grand Princes, in reality the game was up for the city on the Dnieper. Okay, so that's the end of Yuri, but I'll continue the story through the arc of his son, whose name about five minutes ago I completely butchered, so let's have another go, Andrei Bogolyubsky. Now Andrei spent his early years in Vishgorod near Kiev, but in 1155 we find him up in Vladimir, and upon his father's death in 1157 he became the prince of the newly named province or princedom of Vladimir Rostov Sustal. But I said I was only going to call it Vladimir, so sorry about that. Vladimir. With his new authority and power, he at first tried to reunite the Rus, trying desperately to bring Novgorod back into the fold, and more about Novgorod later. And he used the old stick and carrot approach in the southern princedoms. And what do I mean by stick and carrot? Well, stick means fighting and carrot means diplomacy. And his stock must have been rising because in 1162, he was able to send an embassy to Constantinople, which lobbied for a separate metropolitan see to be established in Vladimir. And just in case you're wondering, a metropolitan is a rank in the Orthodox Church above an archbishop. Well, it is in the Russian Orthodox Church anyway. Back in the southern princedoms, however, things were not going so well. Maybe down to too much use of the carrot and not enough use of the stick. And so running out of patience in 1169, Andre, with a coalition of princes, sacked Kiev, devastating it as never before and the city was plundered of most of its religious artwork and treasure, much of which was transported back to Vladimir, which coincidentally had recently been strengthened and fortified, and was now essentially the new capital of the Rus' princedoms, with one major exception, which we'll come on to. But he doesn't get to enjoy his new capital city for long, because like his father, he doesn't get on with his boyars. And all of this leads to a series of schemes and plots, which came to a head in 1174, when a group of assassins broke into his chambers and murdered him in his bed. So another sticky end, but between them, Yuri and Andre have shifted the centre of power away from Kiev and eastwards to Vladimir. And by the way, you're probably wondering well, why Andre was called Bogolyubsky. Well, there's no great mystery to it. He had built a castle just outside of Vladimir, and it was referred to as Bogolyubovo, and it's from that he got his nickname. So the one major exception that I think I've mentioned a couple of times uh, was Novgorod. Now, Novgorod had always been a bit different. If you remember, it was the original HQ or capital of the first Varangians as they forged their trading networks down the Dnieper and Volga rivers. And no doubt when Kiev became the capital, because it was closer to the main trading centre Constantinople, you would have expected Novgorod to become a bit of a fringe player. But it didn't. 
It maintained most of its importance as it controlled the onward distribution of Byzantine trade goods back to the Scandinavian homelands, particularly those that came up the Volga, so bypassing Kiev. And because it was, it was so large and it was a border town, its people maintained a large degree of independence. And as early as 1014, Novgorod was effectively self-governing and had built up a highly efficient, financially sound, quasi-democratic series of institutions. And to protect itself, it had built in 1044 its own Kremlin, or Detinets. And then a year later, it had its first cathedral, St. Sophia, which became the main place of worship for the northern Rus lands due to its beautiful architecture and great size. In 1136, so right at the beginning of the period recovering, a type of early republic was set up in the state of Novgorod. Yes, there was still a prince, mainly for military and defensive purposes, but there were also elections, and if the prince didn't rule in accord with the elected officials, he'd soon find himself in hot water, and in some cases, marched out of the city. So I'll cover Novgorod in further detail at some point, because it is a fascinating place. And in the future, it does have an increasing role to play. But for now, I just wanted to give you a flavour of the place and why it was so different. So, all of that is a simplified, condensed version of a complex series of events that led to the decline of Kiev, the rise of Vladimir, and the quasi-independence of Novgorod. But I think you have to sit back and ask yourself, why did all of this happen? And the answer is the usual one. It's simple, it's greed. Greed for money and greed for power. And the underlying reasons were a breakdown in central power and economic decline. And there's a further question. I mean, at the end of this, what's really changed? And on a macro scale, not a lot. Most of the people outside of the princes, their retinues, the boyars and the clergy continue to live their, well, pretty mundane lives, generally unaffected by whether or not they were ruled from Kiev, Vladimir or Novgorod. No doubt some of them had served in the various armies, and no doubt some of them were injured and died. But on the whole, life continued much as it ever had. So I like to think of it in terms of the following. Imagine you've got a big old-fashioned bird cage. It contains 12 birds, all sitting on separate perches. Something gives the cage a great big shake, and that something, or the shake, equals the Cumans, the Apennine system, and the decline of Byzantine trade. There's then a load of squawking and flapping, but finally the birds calm down, but now they've all ended up on different perches. So, same cage, same birds, different perches, and a load of mess and feathers, and that about sums it all up. Okay, let's leave it there for this week. Next time we'll be look, taking a look at how the Grand Princes of Vladimir get on with their time in the sun and also exploring the questions, what's, or the question, what's going on with the Cumans. Just before I go, if you want to get in touch with a comment or question via the website, historyofrussia.podbean.com, via Twitter at historyrussia1, or via email, nordicworld.outlook.com. Okay then, until next time, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll see you all soon.